Thank you very much indeed, Monsignor Philip. Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to be with you today and to make a small contribution to this wonderful symposium. I must begin by making a disclaimer. Um, I am no expert on Blessed John Henry Newman, but I do have the enormous privilege of having served as Archbishop in the diocese where he lived for much of his own life, a little more in Oxford, and then latterly at the Maryvale House, Oscott, in Birmingham, at the converted centre of the city, at least his cellars are still, and in the oratory which became his home and which has of course become a place of pilgrimage for so many since. Since the beatification of Blessed John Henry in 2010, I'm grateful that I've had many conversations with the oratorians and with others thought with thoughtful insights. And I'm particularly grateful for the pastoral insights uh, that have been shared with me by Father Peter Conley, priest of my archdiocese. His creative reflection of the Senate have provided the foundations for this address. Father Stephen de Seng, in a prophetic homily, offered the following directions to the participants at a landmark international conference for Newman Scholars and Newman Associations in 1956. He said, there are, lessons, there are the lessons Newman must teach us. We so easily forget that the aim of all our work should be the spread of God's kingdom on earth through his church. And when we study Newman's philosophy, we sometimes forget too that this was every part of his activity. This perspective remains especially relevant today when considering a thoughtful approach to belief in a secular age. Newman acknowledged that his most complex work an essay in aid of the of 1870 might not be easily understood. At various times, he'd found his subject matter difficult to get hold of. I cannot but sympathise, and I am sure that scholars down the years have drawn much comfort from his own insight. It took him decades of struggle to complete. He described it as part theological and part philosophical, and he crystallises its main purpose in a conversation with Father Edward Caswell. Father Caswell, in turn, recorded the gist of this in the flyleaf of his own copy. Object of the book twofold. In the first, in the first part, shows that you can believe what you cannot understand. In the second part, that you can believe what you cannot absolutely prove. In respect of the specific church background surrounding it, 
Father de Saint notes that the First Vatican Council was casting its shadow over the period covering the grammar's final publication. He added that, again and again, Newman insisted that although he accepted papal infallibility as a theological opinion, and that it would not be a difficulty to him if it were defined, still, it was not yet. It was not yet an article of faith, and if it became such, it would be strictly defined, strictly qualified. For the purposes of this presentation, Father Ian Carr's observations are apposite. The great difficulty of religious belief in a sceptical age was not helped by ultramontane extremism. The broader context within which Newman's ideas were fermenting is summarised succinctly by Pope St John Paul II on the occasion of the bicentennial of the Cardinal's birth. He wrote, Newman was born in troubled times, which knew not only political and military upheaval, but also turbulence of soul. Old certitudes were shaken, and believers were faced with the threat of rationalism on the one hand and fideism on the other. Rationalism brought with it a rejection of both authority and transcendence while fideism turned from the challenges of history and the tasks of this world to a distorted dependence upon authority and the supernatural. In such a world, Newman came eventually to a remarkable synthesis of faith and reason, which were for him like two wings on which the human to rise to the contemplation of the truth. It was the passionate contemplation of truth which also led him to a liberating acceptance of the authority which has its roots in Christ, and to the sense of the supernatural which opens the human mind and heart to the full range of possibilities revealed in Christ. I end the quotation from St. John Paul II. Newman was of the intellectual currents impacting Victorian society. He explains that his text is a philosophical polemic suited to these times. However, despite his critics, in the press and elsewhere, as he says, perpetuating a lie like players keeping up the shuttlecock, the grammar is not trying to refute particular proponents per se, Newman states that he has deliberately not read any contemporary authors before framing it, so as to come to an independent judgment. In a letter that he wrote to one of my predecessors, Bishop Oliver, he said, it is not written against writers of the day, Mr. Huxley, or Professor Tyndall, or Sir Charles Lyell, or anyone else. It is on a subject or semi-logical ascent, 
Of course, unless I thought the book had its use, I should not have made so many attempts to write it. But I am no judge of its worth. Newman makes a similar point to his sister Jehima. Although he rather underplays his motivation by telling her that he composed the grammar for his own pleasure. He reveals his personal reasons maybe more deeply to Father Henry James Coleridge when he writes, I have no further call on me. I have done my best and given my all, and I leave it to him to prosper or not, as he thinks fit, for whom I have done it. Newman is interpreting his book then as the next stage of a vocation that he's received, received as a young man, recognising that there were two self-evident beings, himself and his creator. Although the grammar is a complex analysis of Newman and other people's religious awakenings, it never loses sight of God's individual care. A collection of letters entitled by Father de Sain, The Grammar of Ascent, throws light on this. The Reverend G. A. Cox asked Newman's opinion of a clergyman who declared in a sermon that he would rather die than disbelieve the Incarnation. Newman reacts and replies that he does not find this strange. Although the doctor abstract terms, it is being responded to, he believes, in a concrete way. This is how the grammar describes the difference between notional and real ascent. In the letter, Newman uses the analogy of his close friend who reminds him of concepts like honour and fidelity. He compares these qualities with the actual experience of how they display themselves whenever they are in each other's company. He says that he owes everything he has become to his friend and sums up this by declaring, I love him, not as a proposition, but as a person. Newman maintains that if he can say this about his faithful companion, how much more can it be true of his relationship with Christ? He then refers to the martyr St. Polycarp, who gave his life true God and true man. This is what living and dying for a dogma looks like when belief acted upon as notional becomes real ascent. In Newman's reply to the Reverend Cox, he provides the essence of the grammar. The work itself is the embodiment of what would later become his cardinal's motto. It outlines, using analytical argumentation, the inner journey as heart speaks to heart. Newman acknowledges that saints, martyrs, and Christians of all down the ages have been inspired to follow this path. 
The grammar opens with modes of holding propositions, and at length it moves into the imaginative contemplation of revealed religion. The final paragraph of the text culminates in an encounter with Jesus, who says to us, I am the Good Shepherd, and I know mine, and mine know me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them everlasting life, and they shall never perish, and no man shall pluck them out of my hand. In this encounter, through prayer and the sacraments, we learn to love Jesus not as a proposition, but as a person. Cor ad cor loquitur. The phrase is from St. Francis de Sales. Newman realised the depth of his biblical meaning. The heart is the place of meeting with God through our emotions, our desires, our will, and the ability to make decisions in conscience. Wendy Wright, in Heart Speaks to Heart, the Salesian spiritual tradition, shows how St. Francis applied this expression to his own ministry. With hindsight, we can see how much his words resonate with Newman's priesthood, of which the grammar was its fruit. Preaching must be spontaneous, these words of St. Francis. Preaching must be spontaneous, dignified, courageous, natural, sturdy, devout, serious, and a little slow. In a word, to speak with affection and devotion, with simplicity and candour, and with confidence, and to be convinced of the doctrine we teach and of what we persuade. The supreme art is to have no art. Our words must be set aflame not by shouts and unrestrained gestures, but by inward affection. They must issue from our heart rather than from our mouth. We must speak well, but heart speaks to heart, and the tongue speaks only to men's ears. Roger's thesaurus of English words and phrases associates the term thoughtfulness with reflection, cognition, meditation, and pondering. Newman acknowledged that his sermons preached before the University of Oxford between 1826 and 1843 contained many ideas which mature in the grammar. One of these, given on the Feast of the Purification, explores Mary as the exemplar of thoughtfulness for all Christian disciples to imitate. The sermon says, Mary's faith did not end in a mere acquiescence in divine providences and revelations. As the text informs us, she pondered them. Thus, Saint Mary is our pattern of faith, both in the reception and in the study of divine truth. She does not think it enough to accept. She dwells upon it, not enough to possess. She uses it, not enough to assent. She develops it, not enough to submit to reason. She reasons upon it. 
And thus she symbolises to us not only the faith of the unlearned, but the doctors of the church also, who have to investigate and weigh and define, as well as to profess the gospel. Reading the grammar, we can see that Mary's characteristics are similar to those Newman uses to explain each person's capacity for piecing together the clues identifying God's presence in their lives like a detective. Monsignor John Henry Newman, A Mind Alive, states, when using our illative sense, we weigh the evidence, discern the patterns in the converging probabilities, and come to certitude. Elsewhere, in his letters, Newman uses the analogy of the threads of a cable, or sticks in a bundle, to describe what he calls this common sense. Newman's grammar presents another example, a Dominican, Mother Mary Margaret Hallahan, the foundress of the English Dominican sisters, to whom he was close presents her as a model for how this sense works. A religious biography lately published, he writes, affords us an instance of this spontaneous perception of truth in the province of revealed doctrine. Her firm faith, says the author of the preface, was so vivid in its character that it was almost a of the entire prospect of revealed truth. Let an error against faith be concealed under expressions however abstruse, and her sure instinct found it out. I have tried this experiment repeatedly. She might not be able to separate the heresy by analysis, but she saw and felt and suffered from its presence. Mother Mary Margaret Hallinan did not search for scientific proof in order to decide about religious doctrine, unlike other Newman's friends. Newman also uses a poignant example from the novel of Elizabeth Gaskell, Mrs. Gaskell's novel North and South, which explores how a poor factory girl facing death says that she would react without belief in eternal life. I think if this should be the end of all, the character says, and if all I have been born for is just to work my heart and life away, and to sicken in this with those millstones in my ears forever, until I could scream out for them to stop and let me have a little peace of quiet, and with the fluff filling my lungs until I thirst to death for one long deep breath of clear air, and my mother gone, and I never able to tell her again how I loved her, and of all my troubles. I think if this life is the end, and that there is no God to wipe away all tears from all eyes, I could go mad. Newman's next sentence is, here is an argument for the immortality of the soul. Never having a vision of sharing in Christ's resurrection, would be too unbearable for the young woman to contemplate. As it was for Newman himself, when as a young man he framed such a notion and then challenged it with the reality of his father's death. 
On Thursday, he writes, he looked so beautiful, such calmness, sweetness, composure and majesty were in this countenance. Can a man be a materialist who sees a dead body? Here is present, nascently, Newman's sacramental or dogmatic principle, which appears in his Apologia as well as in the grammar. Simply put, created things result in ideas about their nature and are potential means to direct encounters with the risen Christ. Despite reason identifying the facts to help secure our faith in the world around us, Newman acknowledges that nothing can prevent us. As he concentrated on revising the grammar, he wrote with characteristic yet compassionate candour to Louisa Simeon. His letter opens up the landscape before her comprehensively as she engages in a search for certainty and belief. He writes, you must begin all thought about religion by mastering what is the fact that anyhow the question has an inherent, eradicable difficulty in it. As in tuning a piano, you may throw the fault here or there, but no theory can anyone take up without that difficulty remaining. It will come up in one shape or another. If we say, well, I will not believe anything, there is a difficulty in believing nothing an intellectual difficulty. There is a difficulty in doubting, a difficulty in determining there is no truth, in saying that there is a truth, but that, one can, that no one can find it out, in saying that all religious opinions are true, or one as good as another, a difficulty in saying there is no God, that there is a God, but that he has not revealed himself except in the way of nature, and there is doubtless a difficulty in Christianity. The question is whether, on the whole, our reason does not tell us that it is the arguments commonly urged for its truth as sufficient, and a duty in consequence to believe heartily in Scripture and the Church. Newman recommends that Louisa Sillian clearly identifies the presupposition from within to form certainty. In the grammar, he says, what I am directly aiming at is to explain how we gain an image of God and give a real assent to the proposition that he exists. And next, in order to do this, of course, I must start from some first principle, and that first principle, which I assume and shall not attempt to prove, is that which I should also use as a foundation. That is, that we have, by nature, a conscience. Mary Catherine Tillman makes reference to Pascal's influence on Newman's thought, and it has a bearing upon his appropriation of the expression, heart speaks to heart. Primitive words, or first principles, in the order of mind are known by the heart, says Pascal. In a direct and immediate knowledge that provides the principles not only for all intellectual discourse in abstract and concrete matters,
but also for the more practically oriented acts of human judgment, the Aristotelian phronesis of Newman's illative sense. Every thought about belief in a secular age involves humility being exercised by each of the parties. This quality is revealed in the detailed exchanges between Dr. Mabel, a young philosophy professor at St. Mary's College, Oscott, and Newman himself over the grammar's final drafts. Mabel admits to him that he has to remind himself that sometimes there are two different groves. I think of the abstract, while you have to do with the concrete. Both men come to realize that thinking, deciding, and acting describe a symbiotic relationship between notional and real assent. As the discussion progresses, Newman admits that I most deeply feel that I may be out of my depth. While Mayle says he is inadequate to the task of challenging Newman's thinking, but he replies, assuring his mentor, if you are little, I must be less, because you are really teaching me. I should be a fool if I did not avail myself most thankfully of your remarks. In the light of the critical response to the grammar's publication, Newman wrote to Coleridge once more. It may be full of certainly characterised by incompleteness and crudeness, but it is something to have started a problem and mapped in part a country if I have done nothing more. Humility also expresses itself in a sensitivity to those with differing views so that positions are presented accurately by those who are opposing them. Two years before the grammar appeared, Newman was sent a copy of an anonymous author's book entitled The Darwinian Theory of the Transmutation of Species. His reply to Canon John Walker, who sent this book to him, attempts to rebalance what was often a source of heated exchanges. It is a clear examination of the theory of Darwin, he writes and it shows, as is most certain he would be able to do, the various points which are to be made good before it can cohere. I do not fear the theory so much as he seems to do, and it seems to me that he is hard upon Darwin sometimes, which he might have interpreted him kindly. If Mr. Darwin's theory comes into collision with revealed truth, that is another matter. But I do not see that the principle of development, or what I have called construction, does. As to the divine design, it is, is it not an instance of incomprehensibly and infinitely marvellous wisdom and design to have given certain laws to matter millions of years ago, which have surely and precisely worked out in the long course of those ages, those effects which he from the Mr. Darwin's theory need not then be atheistical, be it true or not. It may simply be suggesting a larger idea of divine prescience and skill. Perhaps your friend has got a surer clue to guide him than I have, who have never studied this question, 
and I do not like to put my opinion against his, but at first sight I do not see that the accidental evolution of organic beings is inconsistent with divine design. It is accidental to us, not to God. Gentle humour. Gentle humour can help diffuse inflexible and acrimonious discussions. Not taking oneself too seriously often avoids closed conversations. Newman, with self-deprecating wit, describes his attempts to write the grammar to Edward Bellasis, to whom he dedicated it. I have the same fidget about it as a horseman might feel about a certain five feet stone wall which he passes by means of the gate every day of his life, yet is resolved he must and will somehow clear, and at last breaks his neck in attempting. <laughs> Newman's sense of fun is also evident when he tells Aubrey de Vere after the grammar is placed on sale. As to my essay on ascent, it is on a subject which has teased me for this 20 or 30 years. I felt I had something to say upon it, yet whenever I attempted, the sight I saw vanished, plunged into a thicket, curled itself up like a hedgehog, or changed colours like a chameleon. At last, four years ago, when I was up at Glion, over the Lake of Geneva, a thought came into my head as the clue, the open sesame of the whole subject, and I had once wrote it down, and I pursued it about the Lake of Lucerne. Then when I came home, I began in earnest, and have slowly got through it. Many years later, in the volume of letters and diaries called The Cardinal's Apostolate, Newman still emphasises the need to identify the foundations of a person's perspective on given issues. These conclusions or abstractions from particular experiences, as he states in the grammar, ground all thoughtful conversations about belief. Corresponding with William Henry Goodwin, he gives a summary of how he approached such discourse. It seems to me that the great differences in religion between man and man arise from their difference from each other in first principles, so that according to their first principles, such is the religion which they severally adopt. Newman provides us with an insight into how he prepared himself to anticipate the circumstances for heart speaking to heart. In a letter he says, you ask me for a secret. The secret is ask for true first principles and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find It is a slow process. The same scene looks very different when viewed from various standpoints. Pray God to give the true standpoint. Father de Seine remarks that the grammar was meditated and premeditated upon. Just before Newman had his breakthrough concerning its direction in Switzerland, he wrote to Marianne Bowden. Perhaps as he composed this reflection, he imagined himself in her place. He wrote, put yourself into the hands of your loving father and redeemer, who knows you and loves you better than you know or love yourself. He has appointed your life. He created you, sustains you, and has marked down the very way and hour when he will take you to himself. He knows all your thoughts, 
and feels for you in all your sadness more than any creature can feel, and accepts and makes note of your prayers even before you make them. He will never fail you, and he will give you And though he tries you, and seems to withdraw himself from you, and afflicts you, still trust in him. For at length you will see how good and gracious he is, and how well he will provide for you. Be courageous and generous, and give him your heart, and you will never repent of the sacrifice. Now I conclude very briefly by saying, I pray that we, shaping thought in a secular age, can follow the example of Blessed John Henry Newman. He shows us the importance of compassionate candour, the clarification of first principles, humility and sensitivity, prayer and reflection. These were qualities which I believe he recognised in and shared with Blessed Dominic Barbary when their minds and hearts met in Little War. May their intercession continue to inspire our discussions today and into the future. Thank you, Archbishop. I have the opportunity and challenge of responding to a rich discourse in a matter of a very few minutes. I would like to therefore reference particularly the subtle but relevant connection you know between Newman's understanding of first principles and thoughtfulness. Like Newman, you have intentionally avoided addressing specific errors. But the very title of your talk, Thoughtful Belief in a Secular Age, and the points you gleaned from Newman, struck me as both a critique and a response to one of many contemporary errors rooted in Eastern religions, which have swept the Western world in recent decades, that of mindfulness. The quote-unquote religion of mindfulness seems to exemplify Newman's statement, which you just cited near the end of your paper, where he opines that the primary reason men and women adopt different religions is because different persons hold to different first principles. In a broad sense, Newman's own first principles included, as you noted, the existence of two self-evident beings, oneself and God. This first principle admits not merely of two separate existent beings, but two beings in relation. Promoters of mindfulness would reject such a proposition, arguing that if we can speak of any self-evident being, it is only myself, I am. An image comes to mind of an old edition of dedicated to existentialism. There was an image of Sartre standing on a block of ice in the middle of a vast sea. I am, I alone exist. This first principle necessarily negates the religion of the God who revealed himself to Moses as I am. But it does become a principle of this new, different form of religion, 
Mindfulness gurus and their followers promote thoughtful meditation, which is natural, reflective, pondering. Such terms seem to be the same which Newman and the church apply to Mary, the exemplar of thoughtfulness and model of our Christian faith. She who thoughtfully pondered the mysteries of Revelation. But are they the same? According to John Kabat-Zinn, a so-called founder of the mindfulness movement, the first principle of mindfulness is to focus on the present moment. Quote, for no reason other than to be awake, unquote. Mindfulness aims at self-consciousness, self-awareness, my breathing, my body, my experience, a subjective attentiveness to what I am and to what I experience without reference to the present, excuse me, without reference to the past or to the future. Christian, Christian thoughtfulness, as you noted, does not negate the present nor the self, for it looks at the nature of created things. But it examines these created natures not purely in relation to myself. Rather, all of creation, including self, is pondered in its relation to the person of Christ. Nor does Christian thoughtfulness stop with the present. For though, as Newman states, the power of Christianity is in the present, Christianity is the fulfillment of the past, the promise made to Abraham. And its power in the present raises earthly service to the future a foretaste of heaven. Our thoughtfulness is a thoughtfulness rooted in faith, and thoughtful reflection in faith leads, as you note, to love of a person. I conclude by noting one last similarity between Newman and mindfulness, a similarity which further emphasizes their radical diversity. The Chinese character for mindfulness literally translates to presence of heart. Wouldn't Newman agree? Or does his story of the young factory girl reveal that pondering the presence of a sole, single human heart without relation to God drive us mad? Thus, could we presume to say that Newman's response to mindfulness would be not merely core, but again, a humble core ad core loquitur. Thank you.